This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Ukraine is asking for tanks. Is gonna, Canada going to answer the call? Richard Shamuka, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, tells us why Ukraine needs Western weapons, what fresh tanks could do for Ukraine, and what Russia's military machine looks like nearly one year into the war. Tanks are coming from the UK and possibly by proxy through Germany. Handy Eddie Barrar is back to gardening with a fully indoor smart garden, and he's growing peppers. DIY man is amazing. And he helps us understand what he's been up to. Plus, you can make your home more private on Google Maps. Did you know that? And are you okay with The Godfather and more on the Shift Daily Podcast? This is the Shift Podcast. It's about five weeks shy of a year of the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. We were on the radio when all that stuff started. And since then, I've learned so much about geography, about European politics, Ukrainian politics. We have met so many cool people, and we will continue to do that again tomorrow night on The Shift as we go to Odessa for more conversation about what's going on inside Ukraine. Some of the stories, though, about giving material and support to Ukraine has been frustrating, to say the least. If anything, that our Ukrainian friends have reminded us consistently of is that we just need the gear. We're not asking for the people. We will fight this fight, but we need the tools to do it. A recent article comes out, says that Challenger 2 tanks are going. Challenger 2 tanks come from the UK, and um, Germany is not sending tanks. I don't know. Are they still sending helmets? Oh, God, that's the worst story of all the stories. But Germany has to give permission to send tanks. Here's the way this works. If you buy uh, military hardware from a, a country, for example, Germany, part of the deal is, hey, you can't sell that on Kijiji to just anybody. You, you got to ask us first. So if Poland wants to send tanks that they bought from Germany into Ukraine, they have to ask for Ukraine's permission first, even though they own the tanks. That's the way it works. Apparently, Germany's thinking about it. Our guest right now, Richard Shamuka, McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, overall military nerd, I think is fair. Richard, we established that last time we chatted. Um, welcome back to the shift. Gee, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I mean, the nerd is a compliment. Like, it really <laughs> is. Like, it's know, like a true salute, right? Salute. Oh, so. I'm sure everybody who knows me will say the same thing. So, would agree with yeah, that? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, What's your takeaway, man? Tanks for Ukraine. Let's just start with your thoughts and the, the thought that um, these countries are starting to get into some of the, the heavy gear to wrap this up. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things that are going on. Uh, Ukraine actually has a fair few tanks. They've actually captured quite a bit. But one of the big issues that, uh, that they're facing is logistics. And they are going through a terrific amount of shells, um, spare parts, what you name it, they're using it at rates that just aren't really sustainable given what they've got, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, like you're, if you're talking about artillery shells, for example, they're, they're going through 10,000, 20,000 a month, sometimes more. And, and so the problem is that Russian, which are really just Soviet systems, are of a different diameter, different shell size and whatnot than Western systems. And if you can, one of the things is if you can kind of get them onto Western systems, it opens up a new supply chain for them to sustain the war as, it, as, it's, as it's currently fought. And that gives them a pretty big advantages. So that's, that's one part of it. Second part of it is Western systems are in some ways much better 
than than the Russian the Russian ones. You've seen some of your viewers may have seen like video, uh, stuff on Twitter or videos where a lot of the Russian stuff has were packed way into '60s, '70s, '80s, stored in God knows where, uh, you know, and maybe some outdoor uh, sort of park or whatever. And then they they pulled them back in to utilize them in the field, and they're just not mm-hmm. very good. And yeah. I feel like Western Nicolas system. Cage probably sold them in a movie somehow. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Right. So, so a good portion of what they've got isn't really good. And even sort of the surplus Western stuff, not even talk about the leopard twos, which is what Canada has and the, uh, the Ukrainians want, uh, even our older leopard ones, if we still had them could be utilized quite effectively in Ukraine. If, if, if they were, if they were offered over. Mm hmm. Well, so this to me, because of the history of Ukraine in part of the Soviet Union, breaking free of that, the military entanglement between the two is is very much the same. The equipment is very much the same. It sort of boils down to this stalemate. Like you said, um, the supply chain, I hadn't thought of that. That's fascinating. When Russia has access to most of the supply chain, and then yet it's a bit of a stalemate when you're You've got the same pea shooter shooting at each other, right? It's kind of like who runs out of bullets first. Definitely. That's a big part of it. One other part of it, and, and this is probably a broader way of thinking about this, is that the West and the, and the Russian Federation, excuse me, almost the Soviet Union, the, they fight, we fight differently. And, and over the last, you, you saw it started in the Gulf War in 1990, but ever since then, we really utilize a lot of intelligence, information gathering, uh, sensor systems, whatever, to sort of develop a battlefield picture. And so what that does, is it allows us, the West, I should say, to be very sort of savvy and effective with our artillery. We only need to shoot just as much to destroy a target. Whereas Russia, they never fully invested that. Part of the par- problem was that when the Soviet Union collapsed, 30% or 40% of their economy just kind of disappeared, right? And they didn't put the same amount of investments. And they've been quite behind in sort of trying to upgrade their systems to incorporate this new sort of battlefield technologies and way of thinking. So in a lot of cases, and we, we're actually seeing this quite clearly in places like Bakhmut and, and success operations that the Ukrainians leveraging the new information technologies that they're, that they're getting and sort of new concepts of how to operate are much, much more efficient with the use of artillery shells. I, I, there was a battle a couple, yeah, I, there was about a couple months ago where I, 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 I I hope I get these numbers right. I think that he had budgeted somewhere around 100,000 some shells and they only used like one fourth of them because they were so much more effective at just identifying targets, hitting them and shooting them. And and so almost all Western systems kind of reflect that new technological shift. And so, okay, so that's like, another Like a quality versus quantity kind of scenario, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And hmm. we've, we've really doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on this sort of way of fighting in the past, in the past 30 plus years. That's fascinating. Okay, so um, Soviet equipment, though, being old and not a lot of reinvestment, I think if you look at the um, Russian um, Navy as a great example of, you know, they've got lots of really great submarines, but really that's about it. Um, Everything else is kind of old and falling apart, it seems. It seems to lead to believe that the tanks that are in play in this, based on the fact that farmers were stealing them, um, leads you to believe that they're not, the most high tech. So the introduction of potentially the Leopard 2 from Germany, if that goes, and then 
also, you know, introduction of tanks coming from the UK as well with the Challenger 2. I mean, this could be a really big dynamic shift of, I don't know, steamrolling some of the more contested areas, wouldn't it? Maybe. It's a real slog. And and, and part of, so at the beginning of the war, like the Russian tanks, they're okay. Part of the reason why is because all the other areas of the Russian industrial base really saw contraction. But there's certain areas where they actually were able to fund it because they were exporting tons of weapons, you know, they're saying Nicolas Cage, but they're actually like producing new new tanks to sell them to other countries and sort of able to leverage that. They were getting technologies from Western countries. Uh, one of their top tanks was called the T-72B3. Anyways, this tank actually had a fair bit of French electronics in it until the French, after 2014, said, well, you really can't. We can't export these anymore to you. So they have actually some okay stuff. The problem is they've lost a lot of that. A lot mm. of that equipment has been destroyed in the first you know, eight months of combat operations. And so what the Russians are really doing now, as you see with these huge mobilization of like of personnel, like 300,000 people uh, was announced in November, they're looking at another round coming up here. They're just throwing people at the problem. They they don't have the mechanization, the, the tanks and the ARPAM personnel carriers, and all the sort of stuff that they had at the beginning. So right now they're trying to kind of stem any potential Ukrainian sort of counteroffensive or offensive in the east by just throwing troops at places like Bakhmut, trying to take it and forcing Ukrainians to utilize their troops and their some of their new equipment in order to stop the Russians from taking certain certain cities and certain areas in, in specifically in eastern Ukraine. So what so back to your question. Will it steamroll it? No weapon's really going to give you this huge advantage. Like, it, that's kind of a fallacy I think we often have. It's like, oh, you know, this this one weapon's going to win us the war. And it's 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 very, very, very rarely like that. But what this will do, I think, as the Ukrainian forces transition to a lot of these new Western systems, whether it be tanks, uh, new artillery systems, because the, uh, the United Kingdom is not just giving them tanks. They're actually giving them, I think, 30 of their self-propelled artillery units, yes, 90 as they sort of transition to this new Western fighting, they're going to be more effective. And slowly but surely, we hope, I mean, it's nothing's guaranteed, they're going to be able to sort of push Russia out, you know, really be able to make these exchanges against these uh, very big, uh, favorable exchanges against this much more numerical, numerically superior, but less technologically able foe that Russia is going to be, or Russian forces are going to be in the coming months here as as they sort of, you know, re-engage in combat as we come out of the winter. Okay, Leopard 2 tank, Challenger 2 tank. Um, what can you tell us about those uh, without getting too into the weeds and the basics of it? My understanding is the Challenger is the UK tank. The Leopard is the German tank. Um, yep. The Leopard is widely distributed around the world and sold around the world, and I believe even Canada has the A4 version of the Leopard 2. Um, what do we need to know about those guys? We actually have three. That, if you want to talk later a bit about just like wh- how Canada's may be participating, that's it. Sure. Uh, they're both basically uh, 1980s generation tanks, but really there has been really a big push to upgrade or put a new design out there. And they're basically they they both have a 120 millimeter, uh, 120 millimeter uh, main gun. That's a standard NATO size, although the 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 British use um, a rifle. It doesn't matter. Anyways, but uh, they're very similar. They're very, <laughs> very you. similar tanks. I mean, they, they do good. this. They, they're, they're like, there's, 
I can go into the details, but in truth, there isn't that much difference. They just are different. They require different, uh, you know, sp- they have completely different spare parts and all that, right. which is a bit of a problem. There's there's a bit of a term that's been going on about Ukraine among defense analysts. They're starting they're starting to develop what's called a petting zoo. And that's yeah. because they have a couple of tanks here of this type, a couple of tanks there of that type, a couple of tanks of this type. And it's really there's there's questions where or not this is really sustainable, you know, I mean, it, because you're, you've got so big a sustain a sustainment you know pool to to keep these tanks going. You have mechanics that can only work on a certain type of tank. They don't know how to work on, let's say, a Challenger if they've we've been taught them how to work a Leopard. So that's a, that's becoming a problem, and and there's not really an easy way out of it because a lot of countries just giving them what we've got. You know, it's like, well, what's yeah. in the back of the you know warehouse that we can give up that's not going to cost us very much to to ship over and that's that's a bit of a problem so yes they're different they're similar they, they do very similar things but the logistics side of it is a problem and that and that's starting to you know cause issues our guest right now is richard shamuka senior fellow mcdonald laurier institute uh, defense management studies program and so much more in his history um so richard when we talk about these i mean it seems to me like they've got a bunch of fords but they've got a bunch of chevy spare parts really is kind of how it sounds um to not try to not oversimplify it in any way um when we talk about this contribution thing and the rules about the tanks from germany now uh uk has said they will send over the tanks they have 14 i think was the number might be 12 14 something like that Uh, yeah yeah, and um, yeah, fourteen of its own Challenger two tanks, but they're asking Germany to release Leopard two two tanks. I think it's from Poland and somewhere else that have purchased, but can't send them without permission. How does that work? I mean, it's kind of seems. I mean, I so get it. A lot of countries have it. A lot of countries yeah. have these kind of riders, and Germany is actually a very particular case because they have a poor, they have a pacifist constitution. Right. After the Second World War, Germany obviously didn't have a military, uh, wasn't was completely renounced, you know, arms and all that. And then we rearmed them or helped them rearm. They they created the Bundeswehr, which you know was to fight the Soviet Union as part of West Germany. And Germany's always been very reticent about who they send their uh, who their equipment to, what can be done with it. There's a lot of really significant sort of riders on what you can do with them, whatnot. And this is where it's starting to. Um, starting to show. This is probably one of the first times it's really become a, a parent issue. Whereas if you look at a lot of the Eastern European countries, Poland, Finland, you know, um, the Baltic states, they are giving them everything they can. They see this as, you know, our existential threat. If, if we don't stop them in Ukraine, they're coming after us next. And we want to give everything to, we want to, uh, to, to the, uh, to Ukraine. Poland specifically has has been extremely uh, extremely giving with what they've what they've got, and so what they're doing actually is they're going to take their leopards, uh, they're going to replace them with American M1 Abrams tank mm-hmm. uh, tanks, and, and just and they, well they want to give that over. Germany, I believe, last I heard, and this may this is yesterday or day before that, Germany said, well, yeah, we can give them over, but the United States also has to give M1s to Ukraine, and a lot of countries are kind of groaning in that, saying. Just give the tanks over. Just, yeah. just you know, let's not because Germany's been very reticent through this entire conflict. They were supposed to give armored personnel carriers. Then they kind of balked on it and said, "Well, you know, we can't train the the, the Ukrainians," which was now they're giving the same the ones that they they couldn't give. It's been a real fight to get Germany to actually, you know, change its views on this uh, on this area, on the conflict because they're really worried that this will lead to 
uh, an escalation in the conflict and a bigger war, which is, I mean, there's some fears of that, but I, I think at this stage, we're basically 10 months in. And if it wasn't for the West, Ukraine probably would not be in the state it, it is in now. So, I mean, that kind of concern seems a little a little late, if that makes sense at this yeah. stage. Is, the, is this notion of the trade up? I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? Like Poland's kind of like, well, we'll give you these old crappy ones, but if they, they give us a deal on these M1 Abrams tanks, the brand new shiny ones from Merca. We'll, uh, we'll hand off these old ones. It's kind of the same conversation that they had about the jets, right? And, um, they're kind of willing, it seems to me to be that they're willing to hand off, uh, you know, these older ones in exchange for it. And I guess the constant politicking is probably pretty standard fare. I don't know. I mean, Leopard 2 is a good tank. I mean, it's not, we, we chose it because it was one of the, it was the best we could probably get at the time way back in the early 2000s or late 2000s. Uh, mm-hmm. Poland just wants to support. Uh, Poland really sees this as a as an existential uh, threat to them, and, and you yeah. see that. I mean, all these all these European nations on the east on the eastern uh, border are pretty united in this view. Um, uh, the great thing, Leopard's actually a pretty easy to maintain tank comparative to uh, the M1. The M1's just horrendous in terms of its fuel usage, its uh, supply. It uses. The big thing about the M1, it uses a gas turbine engine, which is extremely powerful, extremely fast, but it is really difficult to keep it maintained. And it's probably wow. not ideal for the Ukrainians. Whereas if you give them, you know, a, a Leopard 2, which is a very standard diesel engine, uh, that there's a pretty big supply chain for it. It's probably a better option for the Ukrainians. There's, there's a lot of like thought to put into this part of it because it is a difficult thing to maintain so i I don't think in poland's case it's actually like oh we're gonna give you these crappy leopard teeth they only got them within the last decade too i believe so i mean this is not like a this isn't like they're giving their hands off no no, they're giving them some of their good stuff and so uh uh, so to speak to to keep them going okay well tell me about ivis um the inter-vehicle something something system that um, allows these things to communicate is that technology that's only found in the new tanks and the new um, military hardware or is this a big key to this is to because I you hear the stories about Starlink and the internet and how that's had a big impact on Ukrainian military to communicate um, and Ivis for the inter-vehicle communication systems you know is is this what they're going for is that efficiency that ability to really create a network of strength with it or is this still off the table because they don't have enough good stuff yet so i'm not too sure if they're going to put that i would suspect they would not uh partly mm. because you just have too few vehicles to do so although they're also going to probably get martyred a, a different kind of german apc like a battle taxi uh so this possible i'm not too sure if that would probably generally they, we've we've been very careful to kind of strip out a lot of that stuff and then mm-hmm. give them something that's probably less uh less sensitive if, if it got ca- um captured so mm-hmm. i'm not too sure but that is certainly a system that that does that right there's there's a lot of uh if you look at what we've got what the americans got there's a lot of systems that do similar kind of levels of capability and there's less costly and less capable ones that we have been giving to the ukrainians so I'm not exactly too sure about that specific system, but certainly they're getting stuff that allows that kind of level of capability in certain places. Uh, Richard Shamuka is here on the shift. One last quick question. Does this um, does this allow some of that strike into Russia conversation? Because everyone has the same question. How come Ukraine can't go just kick some some ass on the other side of the line? Um, you know, with the the planes and then the, the limited rockets and 
artillery and all these things that are limited how far they can reach. Is that a still an international conversation that people are trying to protect from, or does this start to change that narrative a little bit? How do you see it? I think it's already started to change. I mean, let's be perfectly honest here. Ukraine's been attacking deep into Russia for for almost the entire conflict, right? They're just using their own systems, what few ones they have. They've been modifying very long-range target drones to strike probably one of the most critical nuclear bomber bases in the Russian Federation's angles about last month, right? Mm-hmm. So they are already doing it. Uh, th- it was kind of interesting a couple weeks ago when Zelensky was in Washington, he, a reporter asked Biden, and Biden just threw France and Germany on the bus. He said, I can't give them HIMARS, which is this long-range artillery system, probably the one that the Ukrainians want the most because this thing's can allow them to strike 200, 300 kilometers behind, you know, Russian lines and really mm-hmm. damage some of these logistical centers. And he said, no, 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 I can't do it because my allies won't let me give that system over to them. Mm. So, I mean, I think it may not be the tank specifically. I think there's been a push to move towards to give some of these systems, but it's still a pretty fraught situation. And it's, it's tough to say where it's going to go. It really is, because I, I think it's been it's been talked quite a bit it's just not happened, and it's still it's still up in the air. Richard Chamuka joins us here on the shift. Richard, um, what's cooler, tanks or fighter jets? Oh, I, I'm a I'm an Air Force <laughs> person, so I have to be honest. It is fighter jets. I Although I, 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 tanks tanks are great too. I mean, they're it's all, like I, asking I you which is your favorite kid. It's unfair. Uh, it, it bit is, but I mean, I I can't betray the fact that you know I've done most of my work on the Air Force side, and yeah. So it's it's kind of hard not to. Even though I'll be honest, I get really sick in air in like simulators oh, really? and stuff like. That. I just can't. I just can't. I got oh, some funny. inner ear damage, so I just uh, just doesn't. Uh, I just can't even sit in like a simulator without. So academia sick, so. it is for you, hey? No, no yeah, it's piloting. behind the desk. I'm All the right. guy behind the desk, really. Fascinating. Richard Chamoka here. It's the shift. It's an amazing look when we think that, you know, back in World War II, they were fighting to become separate entities, the Navy, the Army, um, the Air Force in American military history. And here we are today. Uh, they're so tangled up with technology. It's absolutely impressive. Thanks for being here, Richard. Appreciate it. My pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Handy Andy Barrar is here, handyandymedia.com. Now, um, I know that you've already posted at shiftheads.ca on our Facebook group some of the conversation for uh, this little program ties nicely to my joke at your expense that I was making when I was earlier sharing what we were going to talk about. The video is about hydroponics. The conversation to get started here on the shift is how to blur out your house on Google Maps. The throw the handy Andy under the bus comment was to hide his grow up in the backyard. Hi, Andy. (laughs) Shane. How you doing? I'm good. I'm okay, good. Thank you very so, much. I now, appreciate you. For the record, it was illegal. I'm doing everything that you're allowed oh, to I do said in that. Canada. I said your maximum number of plants grown to the maximum number of height in completely illegal manner, which is a here's, lie. Here's but the, I mean, well, here's the issue with that is I was growing this in this little hobby greenhouse uh, in my backyard and it was great. It was going good in the spring. 
but the summer comes and boy, like if it's 35 degrees Celsius outside, inside that greenhouse, it's like 50 degrees. Uh -huh. So things are, I have a hard time growing in that kind of weather. So then I started thinking, Shane, like what, what can you grow? What grows well in, in that What can kind I of dry heat? out in a greenhouse when it's 50 degrees in the summertime? Yeah, if only like, I have something hot. that I could dehydrate and dry out in this greenhouse. Well, I started thinking, and one thing that you can do is pepper plants. Specifically, yeah. it's called this Thai dragon, this chili that grows, I guess, in Thailand in this very hot, hot weather. The question was, Shane, I didn't have any seeds. So uh -huh. a friend was telling me, he goes, you know, if you take the seeds out of pepper and you put it in dirt, it, it will grow. Really? And me having nothing to do in December because it was snowing and, and so cold outside, I went, I went to the grocery store, bought the, the, the chili, dissected it like a surgeon, got the mm -hmm. seeds out, put it in a paper bag for a week. Then I put it in dirt. Two, three weeks later, it germinated. So right now, and I did that with bell peppers and also this long uh, chilies thing, seed. So between all of that chain, I have 240 pepper plants growing indoors wow. right now from, from cool. seeds that I got from the grocery store, from the pepper plants. So next week, I will post that on shiftheads.ca and I don't, and I'm going to have to like keep posting update videos because what are you going to like? It's, they're just small little tiny um, plants right now, but they're going to grow big. So I might get into the business of selling pepper plants on Facebook because I have so many of these. So uh, well, you have to stay tuned for that. You'll be uh, a lot less in jail than if you were selling your pot plants, um, which was a conversation we had a little while ago, which by the way, you performing surgery, I'm going to have to start calling you Dr. Andy. And that's a whole next level of um, disco dr uh, andy that's just, disco you know, dr andy listen to oh disco music as i as i operate this is so good handyandymedia.com if you want to link up to the youtube page and everything else you can get on there as well from our shiftheads.ca facebook group because andy posts on there too okay google maps though all seriousness you can blur out your place yeah and i don't think a lot of people realize this that if you go on google maps and everyone should do this type in your address and see what comes up most likely your home is going to come up there. Now, the question is, why would you want to hide your home, blur it out on Google Maps? Well, why wouldn't you? Because like in the olden days, Shane, if you were a burglar, you used to have to like stake out a house like old school, sit in a mm -hmm. car, kind of figure out how you're going to enter the house and, you know, do all that work like, like they used to do. Well, with Google Maps, you just find someone's address and you can sit there and stare at their house, zoom in and out, look at their garage, go to the side, you know, get a nice 3D look at, at someone's home. So if you have kids or if you have uh, antiques or something that's really valuable in your house and you don't want to get burglarized, it's a really good idea to blur your house. So uh, you can do this quite easily inside Google Maps. The thing is you can't do it on your smartphone. You're going to have to do it on a laptop, on a computer. So you search your address and then once you see your home, you click on that picture and on the bottom right corner, it says report a problem. There you can actually get a little box where you can try to select what you want to blur out and you make that request to Google. And then you have to enter your email address and after a couple of days, it will uh, reply back to you if it was approved or not. So it's pretty quick to do and I highly recommend if you don't really need your home to be seen on Google Maps, definitely do that, especially if you're concerned about privacy. It's quite easy to do. And uh, it, it'll prevent burglars from staking out your house from the comfort of their living room or on their smartphone. 
That's fascinating. I did that as you were speaking about it. My house, the last photos that were taken on Google Maps, 2017 and um, May. So I would have just moved in. And um, and it looks like um, because I live on a laneway, you can't actually see. Um, they, they didn't go down my laneway. So oh, the front good. of my house is not on a street. It's on a it's on a park. And so it's um, there's actually. Uh, oh, I can see my hammock. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Uh, if you're 2017, you're probably going to get updated pretty soon. They're probably going to come back and, and do an update. It's kind of funny because when they take that picture, it's kind of like a little flash in time of, of your mm-hmm. home. So it, I recommend everyone do it if you've never done it. The reason I didn't do it, Shane, is as you know, I have an Airbnb suite. And I know when I travel, as soon as I get yeah, that confirmation... And, and they give you the address. I always try to look at the home before I travel there. And I suspect my guests are doing that as well. So I really wanted to blur it out. But then I decided, you know what? I should probably leave it open so that if guests do look, they, they're able to find out how they're supposed to enter my home. So um, for, for the majority of people out there, I, I really recommend first, just look at your house. See, see what people can see. Put yourself as a burglar. If they're going to come, can they get any information just by looking yeah. at your house on Google Maps, if they can, blur it out. Yeah, that's fascinating and worth doing too. I mean, I think when the very first time Google had just come out and we were going to Hawaii for the first time and we were trying to figure out a place to stay and it was using Google Maps and we used the street view to walk around yeah. and see what the neighborhood looked like. So to your point about renting an Airbnb, we did that with the hotels as well in Waikiki. We're like, well, how far is this truly to the beach? And we just kind of click, click, click down the pathway to the beach. We're like, it's literally a block. This works, right? I found that really helpful. There was another station I worked at. This is like 15 years ago when this first started. We used to have this sales guy who used to sit in the back alley and smoke all the time. And it everyone always wondered how this this guy made money, right? Like he was always smoking. And when Google Maps came out, the first thing that we all did was go check our street at the radio station and look down the back alley and see if that sales guy was there. And sure as can be, there he was standing in the Google Map pictures smoking a cigarette um, there in Google Maps, actually smoking a part of history. Well, that was 15 years ago. You you should uh, look at that address again and see if he's still there in the back. Uh, well, I don't, never I don't think that. he's actually... I don't think he's actually with the company anymore. So I don't know <laughs> how that works. <laughs> Awkward. Anyway, um, so I, I don't know. Maybe that was what happened with the picture. HandyAndyMedia.com. HandyAndyBarrar is here. Now, we were talking about uh, gardening and all these things. Um, you know, you had some of your CES conversation about hydroponics. Now, hydroponics is really great because it does help with growing a lot of things that aren't deep root. So if, if you're not looking, if you're looking for deep root, that's a whole different indoor gardening sort of scenario. But that being said, it's, it's doable, uh, but it's totally different. What did you find? Yeah, so there was a company that I saw called Rise Gardens. And what they're making is this modular hydroponic indoor vertical garden. So you can actually pick how many levels based upon how big your family is and how much food you want to grow. Now, what the thing about hydroponics is everything that has to be right inside that tank. You have to have the right water levels, you have the right nutrients, you have the right pH levels. And if you can get that equation right, man, can you grow food quickly? Lettuce from seed to harvest in about a month. So if you're trying to save money on, on with the rising cost of foods, 
you know, making an investment in a system like this might make sense. The thing is this hydroponics chain, and I learned this the hard way because I got one of these systems, an older one, is that if you don't get everything right, the plants are going to die. This system solves that problem by making everything app enabled. So the app's going to tell you if you need to put more water in, if you need to put more nutrients in, if the tomatoes that you planted are ready to harvest, it's going to give you all that information. So it takes all the guesswork out of trying to figure out how a hydroponic system works. And it mm -hmm. just tells you when you need to like do something or even harvest your food. So for a lot of people out there, I think if you're, if you have a family or you want to grow your own food, something like this is an investment. It's going to cost you maybe a, a thousand, two thousand dollars or less, depending on what kind of system. Like I said, it's modular. So you can pick a smaller one and maybe add later. But with the rising cost of food, I think we should start thinking about growing the food that we typically eat all the time. And that could be, you know, your, your typical greens, your herbs, and, and it's fresh, Shane. You can be like cooking and just grab some basil or, or cilantro and put it into your food. And you actually get a lot of micronutrients when you do that as well, because the food is so fresh that, you know, it's not like in the grocery store where it's took, taken time to travel to get there and then you have to get it home. So it, it's just such a great idea. And I think, I hope that this will accelerate over the next couple of years, especially with the, the prices of food that we're seeing at the grocery store. We have Handy Andy Barrar joining us from Surrey, BC on the West Coast. HandyAndyMedia.com if you want to connect nice and easily or at uh, shiftheads.ca, our Facebook group, as he posts on there. Nice, easy way to link up to Andy. Cell phone bills driving everybody crazy. You just traveled. You went down to Murica. You've seen what you get down there recently what do you got for us it hurts it hurts shane it hurts. The, the, the more you travel especially if you travel abroad and you see what other countries are paying for cell service it just really hurts when when you come back to canada now there's this independent telecom research firm based in finland and they're called rewheel and they publish a report on mobile data pricing across 50 countries twice a year now last may when they put this report out, once again, Canada ranked among the most expensive countries for wireless rates. Now, the, let's just put it in this perspective comparing to other countries. Canada's cost per gigabyte is seven times more expensive than Australia, 25 times more than Ireland and France, and 1,000 times more than Finland. So if you were to scroll on Instagram for five minutes a day, uh, in France, it would cost you about 20 cents, uh, mm -hmm. or sorry, half a cent for five minutes of scrolling in, in France, in Canada, it's going to cost you 20 cents. If you downloaded a half hour show from YouTube in Ireland, that's going to cost you eight cents. However, in Canada, it's going to cost you a dollar three. So these are just ridiculous, uh, difference. Hey, just, it just hurts. Now, now, I did want to say when I was in Ireland, the getting through anything beyond 3g like getting lte in some places in ireland was difficult uh, there's yeah. a lot of 3g so the technology is also not quite the same either though but we don't have an option to have like say a, a 4g or 3g network and, and cheaper prices in canada mm -hmm. we just don't have that the argument that telecoms have always said is well you know canada's a very large country we have a large you know mass of uh, square footage and a very small population that's why we have mm -hmm. this but, but the argument doesn't hold stain because if you look at the price uh, per, per province, if you go to Saskatchewan, what you'll notice is the big three, the prices are at least $10 less than 
BC and Ontario. And the reason why is in Saskatchewan, they actually have a crown corporation, Saxtel, that competes with the, the big three. So right. it really comes down to basic economics that if we had more competition in Canada, the prices would go down. Years ago, Verizon, I don't know if you remember this, Shane, I think it was like 2014, 2015, Verizon was, was hinting at coming into Canada. They were trying and to just, buy Spectrum, yep. Yeah, and just talking about that, just the, the, the speculation of them coming, boy, the prices went down. Then finally, it was confirmed that they weren't coming to Canada. And guess what happened? The prices went back up. So I, I, we have a new CRTC chair. And so the, the hope is that that's going to be a pro-consumer uh, leader that's really going to fight for Canadians and try to get these prices down. Because for anybody, you go to Mexico, you go anywhere around the world, it just hurts when mm -hmm. you see what other people are paying. And then what? And with affordability being as high as it is, this is, it's not an option these days to have a phone. A lot of government services, if you want to, to access it, you're going to need some type of internet connection, a mobile data plan. And unfortunately, it's not an option anymore to have a cell phone. It's really an essential service. And I hope to see the prices go down, at least in my lifetime, Shane. Yeah, well, competitive sure would be nice. And I know that, you know, so many people have, you know, they don't want multiple cell phones, but it sure would be nice to have an account for work, an account for home and all that stuff. And you just can't afford to do it because you're it's so expensive for everything. And then your kids, when your kids get it, phones, oh, my God. You can go get some of the discount phone companies, but the service is quite terrible. The rules, and of course, kids aren't good with rules. You know, that they don't follow along what is roaming, um, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's tough. It's really tough. And then how many gigs how many gigs do you use every month? And people so many people are overpaying for what they need anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it it's strange that we don't talk about what we pay for. Because they make it really hard when you have the bundling. It's really hard mm -hmm. to figure out what am I actually paying for for my plan. But I hope that we would just each talk about it. And then you can go back to your carrier and try to renegotiate and get a better deal. It's something that I don't think we do enough. But yeah. with, with the rising prices of just the cost of living and inflation, it's a, it's a conversation worth having to try to save a couple of bucks. But yeah, we, we just don't get any luck here in Canada when it comes to mobile prices for cell phone plans. Well, we don't seem to get a lucky price on anything these days, to be honest. Like it's it's Not like everything lettuce. that we yeah. we run into is more expensive. I mean, houses being more expensive, I mean, they definitely build houses differently in Canada because of the weather. So you can't really compare house prices in America versus house prices in Canada. Insulation's different, fire codes are different, even fire codes from place to place. Now they put that fire board up between houses and houses are this far apart and you know, so but some things you can't compare, but some are obviously so wide wide apart um internet just access to internet for your home in some some of the the you know they're all in the same ballpark competing for speeds and everything else and and that's great i i wish there was more competition for prices i really do um i'm lucky i think i have a really good deal for mine but really when you start to break it down when some people are paying like 150 200 um just for internet in their house uh, yeah, that's and because maybe they don't know what to buy, but that's absolutely staggering. Thanks so much for being here, brother. We really appreciate bringing this up. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with? I think Ryan should say it because he's probably going to say it like in the proper voice that I can't say. Can you do okay. It? 
Okay, yeah. Uh, Jono, I actually got some music. If you want to set the scene, oh, I'll do it even like, better. I was all ready to go. Perfect. Oh, you're all right. ready to go? Okay, Well, I, was, go I had this. I was like, I was like, is this what you had? Yeah. Hey, you're going to make me an offer I can't refuse. Oh, yeah. You come to me. Wait, hold on. I can do it better. Do you just pull your face? You literally grabbed onto your yeah, face and pulled I'm, your cheeks. I'm pulling my cheeks down like Marlon Brando. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding, asking me for a favor. I forget the rest of the monologue, but it's the Godfather, <laughs> Gabagool. <laughs> Are you okay with the Godfather? An iconic movie about iconic gangsters, Ryan. Are you okay with the Godfather? Oh, I love the Godfather. It's so good. It's just unbelievable how well it holds up. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it set the scene. It set the stage for what a gangster movie should be. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it like, so many things wouldn't exist without it. Scarface, Sopranos. I could, you could even argue things like Breaking Bad. Like, it's just such an important piece of, of cinema. And it mm -hmm. holds up so stupidly well. Like, it's just, it's a, it's such a great movie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is an endorsement. Gotta say, I um, we do reference it all the time. It's in all the movies. It's, you know, uh, making an offer. You can't refuse. Um, there's, wasn't the horse thing. That was the Godfather, right? The horse head thing. That was the Godfather. That, I mean, so like all of that stuff is very yep. much, that you know, Godfather. just sort of an everyday culture. It's kind of like the eighties and rad. Um, now, it gets referenced in all kinds of fun places, too, which is nice, like The Office from NBC. Hey, hey, I got an offer that you can't refuse. Scooch over. Oh, Michael, this is just for family. But I'm the Godfather. It is really funny, but you know that can be confusing at a christening because you are not the Godfather. Are you talking to me? Okay, your turn. Scooch before I shoot you in the head. Okay, Michael. Scooch. Before shoot you then. <laughs> All right. Uh, some people do terrible impressions. That's probably more what mine would sound like. On mm -hmm. Monday, though, Italiano police arrested a real godfather, one of the most wanted men in the world. Mafia boss Matteo Messina De Nero was finally caught after 30 years on the run. Italy's number one fugitive, convicted mafia boss Matteo Messino De Nero, has been arrested. Officials say he was captured at a clinic where he was receiving treatment for an undisclosed medical condition. Messino De Nero, who was tried in absentia and convicted of dozens of murders, faces multiple life sentences. He is said to be imprisoned for two bombings in Sicily in 1992 that killed two anti-mafia prosecutors. Matteo Messina Denaro is for sure a leader, a chief of the mafia organization. And so he could take advantage in all these years of uh, a lot of uh, supports, uh, uh, coverages, uh, supporting activities at the local uh, context in uh, Sicilia. And this is the reason why it has been so difficult to arrest him. And this is the reason why it is so important finally to, uh, res to achieve this kind of result. Yes or no? Italian could be one of the best accents in the world. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that was up for debate. I mean, it, it definitely, it absolutely mm -hmm. is. Yeah. All right. Italy's mafia boss who set the record for the longest time on the lamb was Bernardo Provenzano. 
uh, featured, captured in a farmhouse near uh, Corleone, Sicily. Wow. Uh, this is, actually is a place after 38 years as a fugitive, too. Uh, Messina De Niro was believed to have enjoyed a more comfortable lifestyle with his decades of hiding from the police, leaving some to speculate whether he might just agree to cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for more lenient prison conditions. According to Italian media reports, during his years on the run, he had a series of lovers and passed time by playing video games, just like Ryan. Oh, um, yep. Just like me. <laughs> While this is a big hit to the mafia, the Sicilian mafia still runs drug trafficking operations. Like It's a big problem in Sicily still, by the way. Um, other lucrative illicit businesses include infiltration of public works contracts, extortion, small business owners threaten if they don't regularly pay protection money, uh, mob taxes. Do you know the history of the American invasion of Italy in World War II? Yes, and how helpful the yeah. Sicilian mafia was insane. And that's what they did. They basically did a deal with the mob because the mob boss had such control of landing in Sicily. That's how they got there. There's in all the history movies and documentaries and stuff like that. They speak of how I don't remember which mob boss, but was literally seen hitching a ride on tanks to go to meetings because they did a deal with the Americans did a deal with the mob in order to be able to land there and have safety and security. This is World War II, and when they wanted security to land in Italy, which was like Mussolini, Hitler, you know, bro love affair, that whole thing, they went to the Sicilian mob to get safety in World War II. That's how powerful that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's scary what they were and still are capable of and even like the fact that it's just the mafia has a lot of control in southern italy and sicily so the mm. allies had all that help when they got to like the halfway point yeah and then they got stuck with german defense when germany invaded italy and it was right. a nightmare and the mob had a huge hand in that and and they yeah. still do some shady stuff even though like the age of the mafia boss and all that has certainly come and gone but mm. man yeah, well, then there was the history of the um, the American military general or whatever he was that he wanted to take Rome. So he went and took Rome when he was supposed to go to this other place. So he'd get his face in the paper. And it just so happened it was like the day before D-Day. So he got like one day of press and then they were like, you got to leave now. And oh, my God, like the stories of Italy for the war. It doesn't get talked about as much, but it was hugely impactful on uh, some of the relationships and what happened. They never did get through Italy to the top like they never did no. um but fascinating absolutely fascinating it's the shift i'm shane hewitt that's ryan o'donnell are you okay with funerals uh, funerals are are tough and uh, like if you put aside even just the the death part of it like the event of it is it is quite it's just so much i think it's the most exhausting thing that you can go through that day of day of a funeral is so much work but at the same time you know some really cool things can happen at funerals the the idea i i think we're getting better at looking at funerals as a celebration of somebody's mm -hmm. life which i think is really cool i i got to experience that quite a lot uh, after my grandfather passed away his funeral felt like a celebration of his life and mm -hmm. so you know when you lean into that that's quite beautiful and i like that idea but still just nobody loves going to a funeral and i do respect the people that work in that industry who 
love it. And, uh, you know, the ability to help the families. I'll never forget when my uncle died, uh, the funeral director came up to me and he gave me a coupon for a McDonald's burger. And he says, you should go across the street and get yourself a burger. You, you just mm-hmm. could tell I was having a rough day and wanted to make me feel a little bit better. And, you know, so it's, there can be some pretty powerful and amazing people, uh, in surrounded by what is, you know, the saddest thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would agree. I think it's uh, quite well. It's, I mean, funerals are way harder on one person than everybody else. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, but the everyone else that has to go, it's tough. I do agree with you that it, it's nice to see people celebrating like with a fellas fishing trip or something like that where they go and, you know, instead of doing, I mean, it's nice to do the formality part, maybe the faith part, you know, fulfill the faith part too. Um, for those who that, that celebrate the faith and then allow the space for sort of the, you know, the, the good, I guess the meaningful, just other people, which is kind of cool. Anyway, nobody really likes funerals. Of course, like I said, it's really hard on one person, everyone else. It's, you know, they just don't like going this woman from Iowa though. She didn't like it. Um, just so you know, this female was transported there deceased and she is not. They are in the chapel and she is on a cot. Did she just say that the person who they thought they transported, she's not dead? Is that what they're saying? Yeah, somebody who was at a funeral home on a cot in the chapel of a funeral home, not uh-huh. dead. Oh, not dead. yes. The Yelp. staff at Central Iowa Funeral Home was surprised when a woman who is believed to be dead turned out to be alive. Oh, that's everybody's worst nightmare. Um, that was a real 911 call. And just so you know, if you thought that was weird, it gets weirder. The Ankeny Fire Department was the responding agency and sent KCCI this statement. The initial dispatch information was for a cardiac arrest. Ankeny Fire Department personnel arrived within three minutes and began a patient assessment. The crew determined that the patient was not in cardiac arrest and began treating the patient per standing protocols. Friday, we followed up with the fire department and asked if the woman was taken to the funeral home dead and later found to be alive. Their deputy chief was not able to confirm or deny. KCCI did receive a statement from the funeral home's parent company saying, quote, Out of respect for the privacy and confidentiality of the families we are honored to serve, we are not in a position to comment further on this matter. Probably because the lawyer said, don't say anything. My God. Uh, KCCI News, credit for that story, by the way. They couldn't get any confirmation or denials from officials of what happened. Still don't know the condition of the woman. Safe to say better than they thought. Better, Yeah, I'd say it's a, an improvement over uh, dead. Yep. That what would is be... the weirdest part of that, though? That that's the what I was wondering. So, for, uh, for the woman's perspective, I'm sure right. waking up in a funeral home, going, "Am I dead? Yeah, <laughs> or right. am I a zombie? What's going on here?" I think the person that's probably weirded out the most is like you imagine if you're a funeral home director or you you know you work you're transporting uh, people there in coffins or whatever or you know recently deceased you you know you see hundreds of people and all that and then you probably after this will forever quadruple check just to make sure. But I don't think you can do your job anymore. I was thinking of that person as yeah. well. When that person, yeah. they go there and they're Terrifying. like, oh, okay. And they're, they're doing their, you know, they're singing. They're so fresh and so clean, clean as they're getting you ready for your embalming or whatever's <laughs> next. Um, 
It's a little outcast for you. Um, and so then, then all of a sudden you're like, and they move. You're not dead. And then do you think that person could ever do their job again? Because if they hadn't been paying attention, their work probably would have killed that person. Yeah, the guilt, like, oh, I would, I, I would never they could feel ever do their job again. confident in that. And this is where it was tough because because this is a, a pretty private incident, and we'll never uh, learn more about this unless no. the family comes out and talks about it. Is, you know, lawsuit. we don't know if she, if the woman uh, woke up on the way to the funeral home. We don't know if she was like right. got there they transported her and then had her wait there before fire department and the ambulance come we don't know so i think the story changes if it's she's already at the funeral home she's on her way to the funeral home right you know i wish i had more details regardless i think for every single person involved from the woman to the people that work there to the family who yeah well this is a next lot. question next question uh, hey, uh, Ryan, uh, how's it going? It's uh, Bob from the funeral home. Just wanted to let you know uh, Shane's not dead. Oh, good news. <laughs> good news, everyone. Everyone. Um, I, uh, but that's, I mean, that phone call had to happen. Then yep. there was the phone call from the family members to like Uncle, weird Uncle Bob, right? It's like, cancel your flights. Like, there's a lot of phone calls. And then, you know, when someone, you think they're pranking you and you're sort of like, hey, you won the lottery. You're like, double check your ticket. You're kidding me. We didn't win the lottery. You know, this is sort of the opposite of that. You're pranking me. That's a terrible joke, Ryan. You have a terrible sense of humor. It's too soon. Shane is dead. Wow. That's Whoa, amazing. Indeed, man. That's wild. Just a wild, wild story. 911 worker comes home. Hey, honey, you won't believe what happened today. Right? Like, they have to take that phone call. That's wild. Um, let's do one more, shall we? And we'll start we this next Are You Okay With completely out of context. He's the new kid in town, and the music's on his side. Footloose. Beautiful. Are you okay with Footloose? Yes. Uh, yeah. When I looked this movie up, when I was writing this story, you've never watched this only movie. Has a, I've seen it a million times. I love this okay. movie, but I was just getting, you know, getting some facts and all that. This only has a sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That's criminal. This movie's awesome. It is like a cultural phenomenon. This is the one of the few songs in the world where you can play this in any type of club. Uh, you know, a hip hop rave club, a country club, you name it, and everybody will dance. That's that's. I don't know if you played it in a hip hop club. Well, at least probably the white people at the hip hop club will dance to it because that I've <laughs> well, been that, that and guy. it became it became that song, it became that thing, right? It became that you know just rural dance uh, thing. But you never know. Maybe it transcends. Maybe it is big enough to do that. Footloose tells the story of Kevin Bacon and his character trying to. Uh, brick rock and bring rock and dancing back to his town after it becomes illegal. He's new there, and by brick that was supposed to be bring. So, in the spirit of all things, uh, here you go. 
That's a typo. Uh, bring rock back and dancing back to his town when he moves there because it was illegal. A timeless story that we've seen a million times before. It's now actually a reality, though. Sweden's center-right coalition government wants to cut red tape when it comes to dancing by abolishing a decade-old requirement for restaurants, nightclubs, and other venues to obtain permits before they let patrons shimmy and sway. Really. (laughs) According to AP, the press uh, outlet, the proposal made Thursday means that venues no longer would need a license to organize dances, but they still would need to ask permission. Venus would only have to register with the police, which which can be done verbally and does not cost anything. Swedish media uh, outlets welcomed the move to abolish dance permits, which have been called outdated and moralistic. And yet again, um, I thought it was Swedish House Mafia. I got myself lost there for a second. Uh, (laughs) Kevin Bacon has won one more time. Excellent. I remember the day, and I've shared this before, when we would travel and our hockey team, and quite often on a Sunday traveling home because we were up in Fort McMurray on the bus, we would go to restaurants like a Smitty's or something like that, and they always had a pub attached. And because we were a hockey team, they would put us in the pub. The pub was closed. It was Sunday. They would always have video games in the pub. But they would have to unplug them on a Sunday because it was illegal to play video games in a bar on a Sunday back then. Okay. Well, now I want to Kevin Bacon it. I want to break those rules. I think that Bring this down, man. I think when the government realized they could put VLT machines in and make profit seven days a week in Alberta. Then they figured it out. Yeah. Profiteering. Let's make more money. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 